get your Bibles out and uh, let's open it up to the book of Luke. It's where we're going to be today, the gospel of Luke. This is where we're going to land uh, this morning. You know, I have a real distinct memory as a young boy of going on a trip with my dad. And I'm not really sure that I remember all the circumstances around why we were just traveling together, but it was just the two of us. And so we determined that since it was just the guys that we were going to do things a little bit differently. And so what we did was we said, we're going to just uh, on this road, read every historical marker that we can find. Okay. And so that for some of you, that sounds like excitement. Others of you, that sounds terrible, but but we thought it was really cool. We're going to read these historical markers. And so off we go. And my job as a little guy was just to, just to canvas the roadside to see if we could find an historical marker to stop off. And when we did, we would pull over to the shoulder. We would get out. We would read it. And we'd talk about it, get back in the car and keep going. Now, I think probably this trip just kind of planted a seed of a love for history that I still have today. But it was really cool because in that on that trip, we read about outlaws and we read about battles and we read about peoples and towns that don't longer, no longer exist, but were very prominent in that particular time. And it, it just kind of opened up a new world uh, to me. But what's interesting is most people just zip right by those historical markers, right? You just don't even think anything about them. You just blaze right past them. Something really significant may have happened there, but you don't know it because you're just moving down the road. Same thing happened to me just uh, not too long ago, I was in New York City, just north of where we're going to plant the church. And I was walking through a park and I noticed a little plaque on a rock in the park. And it said, this is where George Washington gathered his troops during the Revolutionary War. And I'm like, whoa, you know, wait a minute, George Washington right here. I mean, battles right here. This is happening. And people were just kind of strolling through there, you know, no big deal, right? I mean, they just, it's just another park. My point is that Though there are significant things that happen many times because we're so familiar with the area, so familiar with the road that we can miss it completely. And this is the danger with the Christmas story, right? This is a big danger that, that we can become so familiar with the story. We, yeah, we know the story. Mary, Joseph, Bethlehem, angels, shepherds, wise men. We got it. We've seen the nativity that we miss the significance of it. In fact, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Luke's account of the birth of Jesus. But what I want us to do is not just blaze past it and be too familiar. What I want us to do is pull over the shoulder and get out and look because there are markers in this passage that you probably have overlooked that are incredibly significant. What I'm going to call these are messianic markers. These are markers that point to Jesus being the Messiah. And so you don't want to blaze past these. We want to really dive into them. So you ready to do that today? Ready to get out of the car and check out the markers? All right. All right, let's take a look at Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, and we'll start here. This is the word of God. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria so everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. And while they were there, 
the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. All right, stop right there. Uh, Luke is going to give us four key markers that point to Jesus as uh, the Messiah, okay? So I want to point these out. You want to circle these as we go through, all right? So paper out, pen out, uh, uh, mind open uh, to receive here. All right, so here's marker number one. Marker number one answers the question, when will the Messiah be born? When is the Messiah going to be born? And, and Luke points out an actual timeline when the Messiah will be born. Look again at verse one. In the days of Caesar Augustus, the whole empire uh, should be registered. First, it was the first registration while Quirinius was governing Syria. Everyone went to their hometown. So what you have here is a timeline or a spot in history where Luke kind of puts the dot down and says this is the time period when Jesus was born. He anchors it to historical figures and historical times so that we can know that this actually happened. It's not just some myth, not just some fairy tale, fairy tale story. Not somewhere a, a, a long, long time ago, there was the birth of Jesus. No, he anchors it to historical figures. Number one, it's in the time of Caesar Augustus. Number two, it's during a registration that happened in Israel. Number three, it happened when Quirinius was leading in Syria. And number four, which he doesn't mention right here, but he does a little bit later in the chapter, King Herod is still alive, okay? Those four bits of historical fact begin to triangulate to point us to the time of Jesus' birth. Now, let me just go ahead and say on the front end that there are skeptics that believe that this, this uh, time period, this, what Luke is doing here of putting these guys together to rule at the same time, is not possible. They will say, well, we know that King Herod died in 4 B.C., and we also know that Quirinius was not the governor of Syria until 6 AD. That's 10-year gap between these guys. So there's not a time when both of them were ruling at the same time. Therefore, this account cannot be credible. And by the way, that sounds like, wow, that's a pretty formidable uh, concern, right? If, if these aren't lined up and there's a problem there, is the Bible true? Is this really accurate? And so here's what I want you to know. A couple of things. Uh, my message that I'm giving today is on our app, our, our First Collegeville app. If you download that app and you open up sermon notes, boop, and then you look at today's day, you will see the whole thing written out for you. What you will also find in that app is my Christmas gift to you today. And that is, I'm going to dive into that part of it to unpack this supposed conflict and show you how it's easily reconciled by the precise language that Luke used. Not only that, I'm going to add some links in there so those of you that want to dive even deeper can follow that trail a little bit deeper and get uh, more answers to your questions. But here's what I want you to know. Luke's language is precise. Luke's timeline is correct. That Herod and Quirinius during Caesar Augustus is in alignment that point us to the birth of Jesus. That's what Luke is doing. He's anchoring it in history to show us when the Messiah will be born. But that's not even the crazy part about it. The crazy part about it is that the timeline of when the Messiah would come to be is actually told back in the Old Testament. Did you know that, in fact, just out beside Luke 1 through 3, I want you to write Daniel 9. Daniel chapter 9 is a prophecy about the Messiah. 
And what it says in Daniel chapter 9 is that I'm going to tell you when the Messiah is going to come into the world. He actually gives us a timeline. What he says is that when Israel, uh, Jerusalem is reestablished after the Babylonian Empire, that will start the clock. And when you go 490 years, the Messiah will show up. And when the Messiah shows up, this is what's going to happen. He is going to atone for sin. He is going to bring righteousness on the earth. In other words, show you how to have a right relationship with God. He is also, after his death, the temple will be destroyed and there will be no longer any sacrifices. By the way, that's exactly what happened during the first century, during the time of Jesus' birth and Jesus' life and ministry. Exactly. It fits Daniel's timeline, but Luke, knowing Daniel's timeline, says, okay, let me anchor this in some other historical figures so that you can know that Jesus showed up at just the right time. At just the right time. Listen, my, my thought is that probably none of you in this room chose the date of your birth. Is that, is that pretty, pretty accurate? Uh, none of you said, you know, I'd rather be born in March instead of September. No, you didn't choose your birth. God chose when you were to be born. And God chose Jesus' birth to be at just the right time, according to Daniel's timeline, according to the just right time in history, anchored in history, so that we can know that he's the Messiah. The first marker answers the question, when will the Messiah be born? And Luke gives us historical footing and a historical answer. Second marker is this. It asks the question, where would the Messiah be from? Where is the Messiah going to be raised? What, what, what's his hometown? Okay, that's the question. And we find the answer to that in verse two. Look at what it says in, I mean, in, in verse four, Luke two, verse four. It says, so Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea. Now circle the word Nazareth, very important. Nazareth was very important. Uh, it was the hometown of Mary. It was the hometown of Joseph. And of course, it was the hometown of Jesus. This is where Jesus grew up. He grew up in Nazareth. And Nazareth has a direct contact and link to Bible prophecy. In fact, the prophets knew that the Messiah would come from Nazareth. In fact, you might want to write out to the margin of your Bible next to that verse, Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. This is what it says. He, that is Jesus, when and lived in a town called Nazareth, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. In other words, the prophets all kind of knew that the Messiah would come from Nazareth. And so you may say, well, how did the prophets know that? Or where do we have recorded that the Messiah will come from Nazareth? Now, now get this. I want you to follow with me here. You got to lean forward to get it. There, we don't find any specific prophecies that Matthew's referring to that said the Messiah will come from Nazareth. What we do find, though, are clues that the Messiah will come from Nazareth. And apparently the prophets all knew this. So I'm going to show you what the clues are. The first clue is found in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Isaiah verse 11. Now, just listen to this verse, all right? It says, Then a shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And he said, Craig, what does that have to do with Nazareth? I don't see anything. I just see branches and fruit and, and that kind of thing and stumps. What does that have to do? Well, the word branch in that passage literally is a, is a Hebrew word, netzer, netzer, okay? Now, you can kind of hear the word netzer in the name Nazareth, right? 
Netzareth, Nazareth, right? So really Nazareth was named out of the term Netzer. Netzer is a root or a, a shoot off of a, uh, off of a olive tree, right? Uh, if you go with me in April to Israel, every time we go to Israel, we go to Nazareth. That's Jesus' hometown. And when we go to Nazareth, we go to a place called the Nazareth Village, which is a, a little carved out area where you can walk in and everything is time period to the life of Jesus. And you can look and see how they lived at that time, how they made clothes in that time, how they, how they had, you know, uh, baked bread and made wine and things like that in that time period. It's a fascinating place to go. But there are olive trees all throughout this area. And if, if our guide's not looking, I pull out my pocket knife and I can reach in. I can cut off a little sprig off the root. And that is a netzer. And what they said is that the, the Messiah will be a netzer. The Messiah will be a shoot off of the root of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. In other words, he's saying he's going to come from the line of King David, which we'll see more about that in a moment. But he is this netzer. So the Messiah netzer is throughout scripture. Multiple times, the Messiah is referred to as a netzer, as a branch. And so some believe that Nazareth or Netzareth the people that founded this town were looking forward to the Messiah. They were hoping that the Messiah would come from their town of Nazareth. Another prophecy, Isaiah 9, says that the Messiah will come from the region of Galilee. Well, that's the northern region of Israel. This is where Nazareth is found. It's in the northern part of Galilee. Other prophecies say that the Messiah will come from humble beginnings, that there'll be nothing really attractive about him. And that certainly was the case of everyone that lived in Nazareth. Remember Nathaniel when they said, we found him, the Messiah, he's from Nazareth. He's like, Nazareth? Well, can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? Why? Because it was, it was, it was backwoods. It was redneck town. It was, uh, it was just, it was out in the no middle of nowhere, Right? What good could come out of there? And yet the prophets were all saying, this man is going to be a Nazarene. The one who comes, he's going to be raised in the region of Galilee. He's going to be raised out of humble beginnings. He's going to come. He, the whole prophets know he'll be a Nazarene. So why is this important? Why is this in here? Because Luke is going, okay, hold on a second. I told you that, that he came at just the right time, according to the Messianic timeline, but he also was raised in the right town. He was raised in the right town. But there's more to it. I want you to look at this third one here. And that is the third marker answers the question, who will be in the Messiah's family? Or what family line? Who will be in his family line? What kind of family will he come from? And we find that also in verse 4. It says, they left Nazareth and went to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house of David. Now, once again, circle the word Bethlehem. Again, a very important messianic marker. Bethlehem is, is a small little town, still today is very small, but back at the time of Jesus was incredibly small, insignificant in many ways. But Bethlehem has got a lot of Jewish history to it. There was a man who owned a lot of property there named Boaz, and he fell in love with a, a, uh, a young woman named Ruth. You know the story, if you read the book of Ruth, you hear the love story there. And they married, and their great-grandson became King David that ruled over Israel. It was David that was born in Bethlehem. It was David that was anointed king in Bethlehem. And so this was the biggest thing that ever came out of Bethlehem, was King David. You know, I grew up uh, in a small little town in, 
in the Panhandle of Texas called Plainview, Texas. I mean, it's called Plainview because everything is in plain view, right? Exactly. I mean, it's just, there's not much there. There's not a whole lot there, but there was a guy named Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, you probably don't even know who he is other than the sausage guy, but Jimmy Dean, you know, he used to be a country Western singer and he had a TV show and whatnot. He was the biggest thing that ever came out of Plainview, Texas. So when you go to Plainview, you see this big water tower and on the water tower, it says home of Jimmy Dean, right? It's the biggest thing that ever came out of Plainview, Texas. Jimmy Dean, man. Well, if you were to go to Bethlehem and their water tower, it would say home of King David. All right, we may be little, but we got something. We got something to brag about, home of King David. And so that's why it's called the city of David or the town of David. And this is incredibly important tied to the Messiah. Why? Because two things. One is that the prophets told us that the Messiah must come from the line, the family line of David. By the way, this is mentioned multiple times, but I'll just give you one. Isaiah 9 verse 7 says, he will reign on David's throne over and over his kingdom. There are prophecies that say he must be Jewish. Hey, Jesus was Jewish. Prophecies that say he must be of the line uh, or the tribe of Judah. And he was of the tribe of Judah. Now, now from the Judah down narrowing down to the family within that tribe, to the family of David. And Jesus was from the line of David. His father was of the line of David. Joseph, uh, his earthly father, his mother was of the line of David. That's why they were in Bethlehem that night. They were going to their where the family was from. So listen, you've got Luke saying, listen, he was born in the right family, but there's more to it than that. No, it does he have to be born in the right family. The Messiah has to actually be born in Bethlehem. He has to actually be born there in the town. And that's exactly what we see in Micah chapter five, verse two. The prophet said, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. Do you get that? I mean, he said, man, Bethlehem, what's gonna happen is only is, is the Messiah gonna come through the right family, but he's gonna be born in the right village. And Bethlehem, you're going to see it, this great king born to you, and his beginnings are from ancient times. In other words, it's, almost, it's a weird thing. It's like he's already existed, but he's coming into being, and yet his origin, his roots are from eternity past. This is, this is not a picture of King David. This is a picture of the king of kings. This is a picture of the Messiah who has no beginning and yet will come into the world in Bethlehem. So what Luke is saying is this. Listen, Jesus, he's born at the right time. Jesus, he was raised in the right town. Jesus, he was born in the right family. He was actually birthed in the right village. Well, that, that's, that's enough for me. But by the way, there's, there's a whole lot more that I could give you. But I'll just give you one more that's right out of this one. Check this one out. Marker number four answers the question, what will be the Messiah's purpose? In other words, why is the Messiah going to come? And he gives us a clue beginning in verse six. It says, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, that she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, normally when we read this part of the story, we focus on the humility of Jesus' birth, right? We think about him uh, 
without a room and in a stable or in a cave. We think about the angels uh, and the, the animals around him. We think about how lowly it is to lay him in a trough, a feeding trough, a manger. We think about that. But what I want you to notice is there's one word here that's incredibly weighty and important that talks about the Messiah. And that is the word firstborn. The word for, it says that she, she gave birth to her firstborn. Now I want you to notice that that term firstborn is a messianic term. In fact, I want you to write on the margin of your Bible, Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is a messianic text. It is talking about the Messiah to come. And it talks about what the Messiah will be like. And in Psalm 89, verse 27, it says this, And I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most uh, exalted of the kings of the earth. God said, when the Messiah comes, I'm going to appoint him as my firstborn. Now, here's what you need to understand. Firstborn to us means something differently to firstborn of a Jewish family or in a Jewish background. When we say firstborn, like I'm the firstborn of my family, what that just means is you were born first, right? You're just the first. You're the oldest of the kids. You're the firstborn. That's what it means. But in a Jewish context, firstborn means something completely uh, bigger than that. Not completely different, but added on to that. The firstborn was set apart for God. The firstborn belonged to the Lord. You go back to Exodus, the firstborn belongs to God. The firstborn of cattle, the firstborn of your family, the first, first fruits of your labor belong to the Lord. That's all firstborn language. The firstborn also had authority and had power and, and had rulership over all that the father had. So the firstborn had a greater portion of the inheritance. The firstborn had ultimate first dibs on everything. The firstborn ruled. That's how the Jewish family operated. And so this now makes sense when you talk about Jesus as giving the title of firstborn. Not that he was just the firstborn of Mary's uh, birth, you know, or, or, or Mary's family, but, but he has a title of firstborn. Psalm 89 says, I will appoint him as my firstborn. And now we see it in Jesus Colossians 1.15 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Get that? He's not talking about that he was born first, he was created. It said he rules over all of creation. He is on top of all creation. He has authority over all creation. That's what that means. In fact, um, we read that when Jesus was born on that Christmas day, Hebrews 1.6 tells us that Jesus, when he was born, it says, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. I love that. He said, when the firstborn comes into the world, I want all of heaven to celebrate. And isn't, it, isn't that what happened on that silent night in Bethlehem? When Jesus, born in the right family, born in the right village, when Jesus raised in the right town, born at the right time, when he was the firstborn that came into the world, those shepherds saw something they'd never seen before, that the sky lit up with angels saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace 
on whom his favor rests. They were answering what would happen. Listen, Jesus came as his firstborn, but if you continue reading in Psalm 89, you'll, you'll realize why the firstborn came. And there's a reason why. It says that this firstborn came to suffer, that he would be rejected by his own, that his neighbors would scorn him, that people would mock him, his enemies would gloat over his demise. And then we read this in verse 45. He says, you have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with a mantle of shame. In other words, that's exactly what happened in Jesus's life. When Jesus, the firstborn, came to the world, he left his rightful place as a firstborn in heaven over all creation, over all authority, all, uh, all power was his, and yet he humbled himself. He took on the form of human likeness. He took on the form of a servant. And he gave himself as a ransom. He died in your place and in my place. The great firstborn of heaven came to earth and he was scorned and he was rejected and his enemies gloated over him. They said, if you're truly the son of God, come down off the cross. If you truly the son of God, heal yourself. And they had had no idea that he came to rectify and to reconcile what sin had ruined in us. That Jesus came for you. That Jesus came for me. See, all this is a part of the firstborn, the title of firstborn. And Luke is pointing it out to us. Luke is saying, listen, uh, the firstborn came and he came, to, he came into the world with the praise of angels, but he would come into the world for the purpose uh, of death on a cross and suffering on our behalf. And the Bible goes on to tell us in Hebrews chapter 12, which I love this verse, Hebrews 12, 28, it says that when you come to Jesus by faith, that you are now a part of, quote, the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. Isn't that great? That's a great name for a church. We're the church of the firstborn, all right? That doesn't mean you have to be firstborn to, to go to our church. It just means that we are following the firstborn Jesus Christ who came into this world, who died in our place. It's all prophecy. It was all foretold hundreds of years before. So Luke is trying to make this clear. Listen, you didn't choose uh, you didn't choose when you were going to be born. God did. You didn't choose the family line. God did. You didn't choose where, where you would be born. God did. You didn't choose uh, where you were raised. God did. And the same thing is true with Jesus, that God the Father was orchestrating all these things hundreds of years before so that we would know when the Messiah showed up. We would know it's him because all the signs point to him. In fact, I love what Isaiah 46.10 says, God speaking, only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. You may ask the question, well, Craig, that's, that's a great uh, talk, but uh, this, why does it matter? I mean, you're taking us through all these historical markers, these messianic markers, but why does it really matter? 
Some of you may, if you're a little older, you may remember a guy named Larry King. Larry King Live. He interviewed all the, all the famous people. And uh, somebody once asked Larry King, he said, Larry King, if you could go throughout any time in, in history and, and interview any person you wanted, who would you interview? And he said, oh, well, that's easy. He said, I would interview Jesus Christ. He said, and I would ask him one question. Were you really born of a virgin? He said, because the answer to that question would change everything for me. You see, the answer to that question changes everything for you too. Because if Jesus really is the Messiah, if he's the one that all the prophets were pointing to, and by the way, I only gave you a handful of them here. There are over 500 plus prophecies about the coming of Jesus. He fulfilled over 300. So I've only given you a sample here. But if he is who he claimed to be, then that changes everything. Because then he's worthy of your life. He's worthy of your words that you, your only hope can be found in Jesus. You see, when you go on a highway and you pass by a historical marker, it doesn't really matter because all that you're going to see are things that happen in ancient history that don't impact you today. But these messianic markers are different because they have a direct impact on your life right here and right now. Because what you do with Jesus determines the life that you live, the significance of the life, the peace, the hope, the joy that you have in Christ now and how you will spend eternity. Everybody spends eternity somewhere. And Jesus said, he, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So it's very important. So here's the deal. If you are a, if you're a, a follower of Jesus Christ, then I hope that you will not brush past these markers. Don't blaze through the story. Stop, pull over the shoulder, read them, savor them, thank him, worship him this week because he was born at the right time, raised in the right place, born in the right family, born in the right village, came for the right reason. Praise him for that. Let your heart be full of gratitude. And if you are unsure about your walk with God. If you have never given your life to Christ, then these markers are for you. These markers are written down so that you would know that Jesus really is who he claimed to be and that you could find life and meaning and purpose in him. I want you to bow your heads with me for just a second. I want to give you an opportunity right now to say yes to Jesus. You may be unsure. Maybe you're here in the house today. Maybe you're watching online today and you are unsure if you've ever really given your life to Christ. I mean, you may say, Craig, I, I mean, I believe in God. I believe in the Bible, I believe in Jesus, uh, but you've never been changed by him. You've never truly given your life over to him. Maybe you've not responded to the love of God See, the Bible says it was God's love that sent Jesus, the firstborn from heaven to this earth. It was a love of God that caused him to live among us and deal with life like we have to deal with it. It was a love of God that sent him to a cross. It was a love of God that caused him to rise from the dead. And it's the love of God that's strong you right now. And maybe you just never really nailed down your 
moment in time when you gave your life to Jesus Christ, then today can be your day. Now is your moment. The Spirit of God is pulling at your heart saying, man, I need to be right with God. I need to know for sure that I'm forgiven, that, that I know where I'm going when I die, I, to have purpose in this life. Listen, you'll waste your life if you live it without Jesus. But Jesus came that you might have life to the full. And so I want to lead you in a simple prayer of faith, asking Christ to come into your life. And maybe today, for the first time, this is your time to say yes to Jesus. So just with your heads bowed, I want to just kind of walk you through a simple prayer, asking Christ to come into your life. So why don't you start by just confessing your sin to God. Just say, God, I've sinned against you. I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm separated from you because of the things that I've done. Just tell him that. Now tell him you believe that Jesus died on a cross for you and rose again from the dead and he's your only hope. He's your only, only way to be right with God. Now ask him to forgive you. Say, God, forgive me. God, please clean me on the inside. Make me right with you. Ask him to use you in a special way. Ask him to use you to to glorify God and his purpose for your life. And thank him that he loves you so much that he sent his only son for you. Let me pray for you. Father, I just thank you so much for the truth of your word. That from beginning to end, it is so accurate, it is so true. That Lord, that you inspired men hundreds and hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus to write down specific things that you would bring about in real time to be recorded by eyewitnesses for us so that we could have confidence that Jesus, you really are who you claim to be. The son of God, the firstborn of heaven, the savior of the world. And Lord, during this Christmas season, we we worship you, we adore you. We thank you that we're not alone, that God, you are here with us. You are Emmanuel, God with us. And Lord, I thank you for those that uh, have heard this message and even those that have prayed that simple prayer of faith that God, you would nurture them and grow them. They put roots down and grow strong to fulfill the purpose you have for them, God, and to glorify you in this one brief life. Lord, we long for your coming. Thank you for the hope that we have in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.